So we're in Philippians chapter 4 this evening. So if you want to open your Bibles or pull up an app to Philippians 4, that's where we'll be as we wrap up, what, 10-ish, 10 or so weeks that we've been in Philippians. As you open to Philippians 4, though, let's talk for just a sec. Um, Be honest with me. What are some parts of your life that are commonly off limits to others? Maybe not just your life. What are just common parts of life that we don't let people in, topics we dance around, people aren't allowed to touch and we avoid? And what, what parts of life are commonly off limits? Sex. There you go. Great. What else? Politics. Politics. Money. Less now. Like, yeah, everybody. Really? Everybody talks about politics. Money. What else? I mean, those are, those are three of the big ones. Uh, marriage at times. People who let into some of your marriage, but maybe not the depths of marriage sometimes. What else? Parenting. Parenting, yeah. Singleness as well. Anything else? There's lots, right? Uh, Money is one that we're diving into today. Uh, You may recall as we started Philippians, or if you've walked with us over the last few weeks, Paul wrote this letter. It's a four-page letter. In my Bible, at least it's four um, pages-ish. It's a kind of short letter, but he wrote this letter as a thank you to the church at Philippi because they sent him financial support and sustained him while he was in prison awaiting trial, awaiting sentencing, not knowing what was going to happen. Uh, But turns out money's a weird thing to talk about. It's a weird thing to talk about in Paul's day. It's a weird thing to talk about today. And so it takes him almost to the very end of his letter to actually get around to, to the reason he wrote, which is to thank them for the money that they sent. And so he say the very last page, he almost, he almost misses it altogether. The, the very last couple paragraphs of his letter, he finally talks about the money they sent. Money's weird to talk about. Um, and so we've seen m- finance language throughout the letter. He talks about profit and loss. I counted all these things as loss for the gain of knowing Jesus. We saw kind of, kind of dancing around references to finance, but he avoids direct money talk until the very end of this letter. And so today, as we end our journey through Paul's letter, what we're going to see is that he reframes how followers of Jesus ought to think about money. Um, he shows us uh, three things that we're going to see today. He, he shows us money is not everything. He shows us, but money is something. And then he gives us a charge to invest in God's work. And so all three of those things, money is not everything, money is something, and then invest in God's work, we're going to see through this one lens which is this. Money is either an object of worship for us or it becomes a resource for worship. Does that make sense? Like money either is our goal, it's the thing that we put all our stock in, it's our hope, it's it's the thing we worship, or we use money to worship something else, namely God. That's true throughout history. That's true for all of us. Money is either an object of worship or it's a resource for worship. And so before we dive in, uh, t- talk, to, talk to me about where you've seen this. First, where, where have you seen money become an object of worship rather than, rather than a resource for it? What, what, where have you seen money become a thing people worship? How's that play out? Everywhere. Everywhere, Yeah. We could probably just end there. What are some specific, a little, one level deep, well, a little more specific. What are some ways that the everywhere looks like? In the church? In the church? How so? Uh, build buildings of worship. Uh, like, it's, I think, particularly in the southern church, like in the okay. Bible, it's money, money guy shows like church prosperity. Yeah, church prosperity. Yeah, yeah. Churches can use them to kind of build their own, their own kingdom outposts and their own kingdoms, if that makes 
a little bit of a summary of what you're saying. Yeah, it can build up itself. What else? Where else do you see money as an object of worship, the thing we worship? Stock market. Stock market. Yeah, and people's lives rise and fall on the rising and falling of the market. Yeah, obsessed with finances. It's either we want it, right, or we want more of it. It's kind of the two sides of that. What else? Yeah, going into debt to keep up with perceptions. Yeah, portraying something to the world around us. American dream. Yeah. Again, it's not necessarily just money that you get or get more of. It's the stuff that comes from money. Yeah, the people that we look to because they have money. Because they have money, yeah. Yeah. Becoming a workaholic so that you can gain and glean and gain and glean, yeah. Yeah, so back to what Daniel said, it's everywhere. Like, we don't have to think hard to come up with these answers, right? On the other side, though, where have you seen money become a resource for worshiping God? Where do you see money as that? Used well to worship something else. It's harder to come up with, yeah. yeah. And we all, we all do this. I mean, we all, we all strive at least, pursue, think about using our money well, but it is, it's not quite as rolls off the tongue as the other. Supporting missionaries. Supporting missionaries. That's great. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. The roots that dig wells dig water for meeting. Yeah, pursuing justice and meeting needs. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, providing meals, having, being hospitable, absolutely, yeah. So again, that may not be cash handouts, but again, in the same way, the American dream is what you buy with money, so is hospitality and, and bringing people in, something that money can be used for. Disaster relief. Disaster relief, yeah. Yeah. Nonsensical generosity to the service industry. It's the best phrase ever. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, and especially if the the server doesn't deserve it, right? Because tip is tip seems to be such a. If you do this for me well, then I'll increase it to six <laughs> percent. But yeah, extravagant tipping blessing. And on and on we could go. There's ways to do this. So I want you to keep some of those in mind as we talk through Paul's verses today. This is some of what Paul shows us. Um, in these last verses of Philippians, we're going to see Paul reframe the way we think about money. So we're going to read through these last verses, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll chat about it. So Philippians 4, it'll be on the screen as well, starting in verse 10. Here's what Paul writes to his friends in Philippi. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my troubles. 
And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus, this is the the messenger that they sent with the gift, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, which are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then as Paul does, he kind of gives us this little PS at the end of a lot of letters. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, will you guide us and teach us? Would you draw us into your view of finances? Um, no words that I can say, nothing we can conjure up on our own um, can, can do it. We need your spirit to change our minds and our hearts as it relates to the provision you've given us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so again, first thing we see is that money's not everything, okay? So contextually, in the first century world, fairness deeply mattered. We still see some of this today, but, but in the first century world, if you gave a friend a gift, you wouldn't expect to get a thank you back. What you'd expect back is a, a, a similar kind gift. So if I gave you a small statue, guess what I can rece- expect to receive back from you? You're going to give me back a small statue. That's just how it worked. It was very fairness-based, very transactional. Friendship even was fairly transactional. So the Philippians sent Paul money. So what traditionally would they expect Paul to, to send back? A gift in kind. As, as strange as that sounds, that's what they would have expected. And maybe not strange as that sounds. Maybe that's how your family works. Maybe that's a family of origin thing. Maybe that's, that's how, how people in your neighborhood work. If you, if, you, if you provide a meal for them, you can expect a meal back or that kind of stuff. But, but one author says that it would have been a cultural faux pas a cultural mistake to send back words in return. And yet, what does Paul send back? He sends back a few-page letter. He sends back words. So Paul's reframing the finances of friendship. At the same time, Paul's making it clear this is not a business deal. They're not paying him to send them words. He's not their patron. They're not his clients or or vice versa. Um, I'm not sending you words as a good good or service for the payment that you sent me. Paul's telling them that there's something different, a different view of money. In true Christian community, money can reflect something deeper than fairness, than business, even than, than friendship. Money's not everything, is the first thing that Paul is saying. So I want to read the first verses again, first few verses again. And as I do, you you tell me what matters more to Paul than money in these verses. What about their relationship matters more to Paul than money? Again, verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I learned, I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. 
I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. All right, what matters more to Paul than the actual dollars or whatever Greek dollars? Caring for each other's needs. needs. Yeah, their care for him is what he celebrates. What else? What does he value more than money? Your concern for me? He mentions concern a couple times. Is it raining? And in the very last verse, he talks about not money providing for me, not money giving me strength, but what is it that gives Paul strength? He values the strength that comes only through our Lord Jesus. So if you remember... Paul sent Timothy and or the Philippians, excuse me, sent Timothy and Epaphroditus with this financial gift. But more than the gift itself, Paul knows that that money speaks to the fact that there are his friends far, far away from him who care for him and are concerned for Paul. That's what gives him celebration. That's what leads to his joy. And through that reframing, Paul kind of combats this common financial thinking of his day and common financial thinking of our day. Philippians are not the source of Paul's sufficiency. Their money is not the source of Paul's sufficiency. What's the source of Paul's sufficiency? Christ, the giver of all things, including the sudden random rainstorm on a Sunday night, as well as every dollar that any of us will ever have. Christ is the one who is Paul's strength. Whether I'm low, whether I abound, whether I have plenty, whether I am hungry, whether I have more than enough or whether I have less than I think I need, Jesus is the ultimate source of Paul's strength. And and so this can't help but lead us to this honest moment to have together to say some of us have faced something similar, maybe momentary, maybe longer than momentary hunger, maybe some form of danger, maybe some form of loss or loneliness, maybe maybe feeling like we don't have enough. Are you able to say the same thing Paul does when you're in those moments? Are we able to say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength and actually mean it in the way that Paul writes it? Because that verse is maybe the most overused and misunderstood and misinterpreted verse in the entire scriptures. Like that's the one that's on coffee mugs and is painted on athletes' faces, and it's so out of context. In fact, James is going to give us a little cartoon. There it is. What too many people take it to mean is that we cross out everything Paul writes about suffering and being brought low and this kind of stuff, and we only put the smiley face by that verse, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What what you can't see is that there's all these little things written around that speech bubble. It says, I can play in the NBA through Christ who gives me strength. I can lift a house through Christ who gives me strength. I can heal myself of sickness. I can become a billionaire. I can get anything I want. I can fly like a bird. I can literally do anything I put my mind to. Why? Because Jesus. That's how we hear that verse. That's how, that's how everyone talks about that verse in our culture today. That is not what the verse means. It's not a self-help verse. It's not a you-can-do-better verse. In fact, Paul doesn't even say that Jesus will inherently fix 
whatever fix looks like for you. It doesn't say that he will fix your situation. There's no guarantee that if you're being brought low, that Jesus will all of a sudden bring you out of that low spot. That if you have less than enough, there's not a promise that God's just going to all of a sudden throw cash your way. Rather, the promise is that there's a secret and a contentment no matter the situation, and that is that Jesus meets you maybe even in the valley of the shadow of death, as the psalmist writes. Maybe, maybe the blessing and the secret is that Jesus meets you in the dark places, and maybe his presence is a better answer than finding yourself back in the sun. And again, remember, Paul is, Paul is literally in prison as he's writing this. He's awaiting a trial that will determine whether he lives or dies. His hope is not inherently getting out of prison. He longs to see them, he tells us, but he knows that Jesus doesn't guarantee his release. Rather, his secret, he says, I've learned the secret of contentment, his secret of faith and life is not because of Jesus I'll be free 100% or not because of Jesus I'll live. He doesn't know that. In fact, he said, if you remember back in chapter two, because of Jesus, whether I live or die, my life or death will be for God's glory and for the good of others around me. What's the verse actually mean? Paul's secret is that Jesus matters so much to him that, quote, no matter the circumstance, in other words, no matter how broken or beautiful his life or tomorrow or the world or the situation is, he says, I'm secure in Christ. Whatever God gives me, can we say this with Paul? Whatever God gives me on a certain day or for a certain season, even if that thing is not what we want, for Paul, even if he dies, can we trust that that is God's best for us and that whatever he gives us is for his glory and our good? And can we actually be content with that? Where's the contentment come from? We can't conjure it up. It's got to be from Christ who gives us the strength not to climb the next mountain or score the next touchdown, but, but Christ who gives us the strength even just to be content. We don't have the strength to be content in those moments but Christ who gives us strength is the answer, is Paul's secret. Yeah, we, we chatted about this with our DNA group on Thursday, and, and to, to say it another way, this, this verse usually trends towards human omnipotence. I can do all things. I have the power. I can do anything. I can overcome. I can score. I can achieve. I can get rich. I can whatever else. In truth, though, the verse asks us to put aside everything on earth and rely on Jesus's power and his strength in whatever the circumstance. We're not everything. Our goal is not everything. Money isn't everything. The verses just before this, which Nicole taught on a few weeks ago, reminded us that there's a peace that surpasses understanding. There's a peace that surpasses anxiety in all circumstances. The, the only source of that is to recognize and realize the presence of God with us when we're at our highs or at our lows, and when we're abounding and we're in need, and when we're hungry and when we're lacking. And so if you don't know Jesus, 
or for some of our friends who don't know Jesus, or if we're honest, even those of us who do know Jesus, yet still, when we feel low or hungry or that we don't have enough, we all look to something to make it better. And that thing may work and may feel like it fixes it for a moment, but guess what happens over time? It lets us down again and again and again. We still feel like we're not enough or we don't have enough or we go back into a low place or we go back to not having what we need. So again, Paul's reminding us money is not everything. Instead, Jesus is everything. It's a circular relationship. We are in Christ, and Christ's strength is in us. So Philippians, thank you for sending the money. It helps, but Jesus is better. Jesus is more sufficient. Is that good news? It's utterly countercultural, but is it good news for us? And yet... Lest we swing the pendulum too far and just commit to a life of abject poverty and reject any financial wisdom, Paul's next verses show us that while money's not everything, money still is something. So again, I'm going to read it and pay attention. Let's talk. In what ways does money benefit both Paul and the Philippians? Okay, verse 14. How does money benefit Paul and the Philippians? Yet, even though money's not everything, yet it was kind of you to share in my troubles. And you Philippians yourselves know that at the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, or not that I seek the gift itself, is the implication there, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. All right, in what ways does money benefit both Paul and the Philippian church, the receiver and the sender. What do you see? And think about the context we've been in for the last few months. It ties their interests together, yes, as we have some sort of common bond here. He uses the term partnership, which we'll come back to. What else? On just a real tangible level, we said this a few weeks ago, um, when you were awaiting trial in a Roman prison, um, you, you, you had, they didn't provide food for you. You had no ability to earn money. And so literally, probably their gift brought food for them. That's, that's a benefit. How else? How, does, how else does money benefit Paul or those who sent it? All right, I'll help us out. Just like the rest of this letter, nothing that Paul mentions here is about personal gain, right? He's not saying, thank you, it benefited me, now I can amass some wealth, right? Then and now, what's the common purpose of any money that I get or that you get? What's the, what's the purpose of money? To help us take some next step ahead, right? Whether it's dinner tonight or whether it's the next house or whether it's whatever, it's somehow serving us and serving ourselves. That's just the common worldview of money. It helps us amass better things, bigger houses, more extravagant vacations or toys. Just in general, that's, that's the world that money exists in. That's not how the Philippians view money, though. And so Paul is grateful for their right view of money. You want to know a summary of, of the Bible's teaching on money? To, to very much oversimplify it and say it kind of tongue-in-cheek, the Bible's teaching on money is spend some, save some, give a lot away. That's it. Spend some, save some, give a lot away. So, so spend some. Enjoy the life that God has given you. That's okay. Spend some. There are things that, that, you, that just kind of by 
nature and the culture we live in and every culture throughout history, things cost money. That's okay. Spend some money. Save some money. Plan for the future. That's not a bad thing. Jesus rebukes the tearing down of small storehouses for bigger storehouses, but he's okay with the small storehouse. There's things coming that are, that, that are financially wise to save for. It's the unnecessary amassing beyond what we would ever need that Jesus rebukes. Spend some, save some, and then give a lot away. And you know what? God doesn't care nearly as much about the percentage or dollar amount that we give as much as the heart of sacrificial generosity behind whatever it is that we give. There's folks that, that you may know, I know at least a couple folks who could give away like 90% of their income and still live a lavish life and feel no sacrifice, no care, for, no, no care for others, no need for generosity. It doesn't feel that generous. It doesn't feel like it, it causes them to have to sacrifice. At the same time, there's folks that we know, and this may be you, maybe me, um, that, that echo a little bit of the, the widow that Jesus saw in the Gospels who goes and puts the, the equivalent of one-eighth of a penny in an offering box. And, and do you remember the story? Jesus says that she gave more than all the rest. Jesus celebrated her sacrifice, her generous act, even though the actual dollar amount, we'd all round to zero. It was almost nothing. Give some, save some, give a lot away. And it's worth mentioning that, that, that our, our church intentionally pursues having a small budget. Uh, Michaela's our only staff member, and she's super well paid for, what, six to ten hours a week, something like that? Yeah, she's rolling in it over here. Um, and all of the rest of us, all of us in this room, all the folks who aren't here today, everyone else, and also Michaela fits this category as well, but all of us merely serve and give time and effort and energy in the places that God's given us gifts and passions. That, that's a beautiful picture of a body coming together. We intentionally pursue a small budget. And so, yes, at the same time, like we call each other to give financially and sacrificially to the work of this church, this community. But we also intentionally encourage you to put aside some money for just everyday generosity so that you can Emily, do you remember the, oh, Riley's back there. What's the, what's the term you used? Nonsensical, nonsensical generosity to those in the service industry or meeting needs uh, for, for those who you drive by every day or having folks in your house and just being generous. We, we encourage you to set aside some funds in your household budget just to be able to be sacrificial and generous as you feel led. One of our values is selfless generosity. We, we, we want to call each other, and, and please remind us as well, like, use your home, use your time, use your possessions for God's people, for God's purposes. It's about inconveniencing ourselves for other people, and that includes finances. And then also, giving to the church, giving in, in everyday ways, like the Philippians who supported Paul as a missionary on his journey, provided for Paul's needs, we also encourage each other to support organizations or missionaries or ministries that you feel connection with. So in summary, spend some, save some, give a lot away, give to salt and light, give to organizations, and live with selfless generosity in everyday life. And it's, it's in that kind of light that Paul says money is something. Because money on the surface is just money. But money as a gift reflects something deeper behind the actual money.
beneath the actual money. It's true partnership, he says. It's a giving and a receiving. It's a two-way relationship. We get to share in each other's fruit of the gospel. Jesus echoes this, or I guess foreshadows this in his famous Sermon on the Mount. He says, where your money is, you know this, your what? Your heart will be also. And so for the Philippians and for us today, their financial gift shows their heart for Paul, and more than that, which we'll see in just a sec, it shows their heart for God. Verse 17 shows that Paul benefits from their selfless generosity, but more than what he receives from them, he celebrates the fruit of generosity that he sees in their hearts, which is represented by the gift. Does that make sense? Money's not everything. Money is something. And then as Paul ends this train of thought, he, he brings us to this charge for today, which is invest in God's work. And we've already mentioned the, the biblical teaching on money. We've already talked about our salt and light's view of giving. His final verses are a greeting, but they also reiterate why investing in God's work matter. And this is what we see in the last verses of this letter before his PS, before his little personal postscript. While much of Paul's world and while much of the world of Fort Worth, Texas in 2021 makes money an object of worship, Paul charges us to view it as a resource for worshiping God. Verse 18, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to who? To God. Who'd you give to? I received, but your gift was a gift to God, and my God will supply, he's confident in this, every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So think about this in another realm of Christian faith. Who benefits when you offer forgiveness to someone? Who benefits from that? You do some. You're, you're, you're free of something. They do some, right? You've, you've forgiven them of some debt or burden. But forgiveness is not primarily about the other person, is it? Forgiveness is primarily an act of worship before God because it takes deep trust in God to give whatever burden, whatever wrong to him. Forgiveness is more about an act of worship that happens to benefit somebody else. Can I say it like that? That's how Paul views giving here. Who benefits when you give to salt and light or when you support a missionary or ministry or when you meet an everyday need? Who, who benefits from that? The church or the recipient or whatever else. And yet, when we invest in that kind of work, we're truly sacrificing for who? For God. If we see it in that lens, if we see this through the lens of being a resource for worship. He says it's a fragrant offering. This is a, a reference to the Old Testament sacrifices that Israel offered in gratitude for God's work and provision. And so I, like, I've, I, can, I can share with you from the other side of this. In, in November 2009, I entered into a fully support-raised role with this organization that I work for called Soma and Saturate. And three months later, COVID hit. And I'll be honest, like, we, we didn't know what was going to happen with our financial provision. Like, it was 
fantastic timing to enter into a support-raised role before a global pandemic. And, and yeah, while there was some fear and uncertainty and anxiety, um, God provided throughout every single month. Some months were a little low, lower than our goal. Other months were higher than our goal. But in the end, it all evened out. And we we're really grateful for God's financial provision. But at the same time, these past 18 months since I started working for Saturate, God grew my heart and my understanding of these verses and these principles. Like the, the, the folks who didn't financially support us but committed to pray for us on a regular basis, that, that felt as much like partnership. And we grew to appreciate them. Jess already did. I had to grow to appreciate them as much as financial partners. She's just a better human than I am. Um, but God had to grow my heart for that. I didn't understand it. I thought when you get the, like, the letter for support that's always like, you can pray for us or you can check the box for giving, it always, it always felt to me previously like, oh, you can pray for us, but what we really need is this other thing. And yet in reality, like, that kind of partnership is just as valuable. The care and support that groups can give each other, the, the ways we can enter into each other's lives is a beautiful picture of partnership and sacrifice and generosity and fruit. And it all benefits other people. People's prayers and, and finances benefited our support raising. And yet, what I came to see is that it was all so much more about God and their relationship with him than even our own benefit. Maybe some of you have been in that kind of situation. Maybe some of you, next time you get a request for some sort of support, might have your view shaped a little bit more and say, like, this really is a two-way thing. We all get to enter into this kingdom ministry together. N.T. Wright, who's a British uh, Anglican priest um, and professor, sees verse 18 as the climax of this whole book. Here's what he says. He says, giving yourself for God and giving yourself to the benefit of others, in this case Paul, is an act of sacrificial worship. While many people worship money, followers of Jesus view money as a resource for worshiping God. We display a countercultural glimpse of heaven when we trust Jesus and invest in eternal things. And as we do that, Wright continues, we rest assured that God, who we give money to as an act of sacrifice and worship, will also supply every need. Not every want, per se, he makes it very clear, but every need. God will keep you in every circumstance just like he did Paul. That's the promise. That's the confidence Paul has. God will shape you and grow your dependence on him. That's what Paul feels toward the Philippians, and that's the fruit of generosity and sacrifice. And as we close, we zoom out from just finances. How did God provide for us most fully? And how did God meet our most deep need? I love the song, Jesus Paid It All, because it brings these two themes together. It's debt language, it's forgiveness of debt language, and that reminds us of what Jesus did more than just providing for our daily functional need, which he also does. He met the deeper need that some of us didn't even realize that we had. It's in Christ that Jesus reframes our everyday life and has throughout this book of Philippians. We've seen a renewed view of history and philosophy and religion and identity and money and conflict and peace and even life and death itself. Paul's covered a lot of grounds in this short letter. 
All of Paul's thoughts in Philippians turn us toward the glory of Jesus. And as we share in his glory and his suffering, we share in Christ Jesus. And so let's turn to communion, and Paul closes his letter with this kind of final reminder of our identity in him. So if you haven't grabbed it yet, you can grab it off the table back there, peel off the little clear top for the wafer. One thing I realize, I realize I've made fun of these things a lot because they're terrible and they're worth making fun of. But, but one thing that I've come to appreciate about them is that there's like a breakableness to this little wafer. And when we pull bread usually or that kind of stuff, it's, it's, we can kind of lose the image of, of the actual body being broken. And so maybe there's something today for us as we take this in just a moment that we actually might break it and be reminded of Jesus' broken body for us. As verse 21 reminds us that if we follow Jesus, we're saints in God's eyes, not because of any strength on our own. We still sin, we still suffer, we're still broken, but we're washed clean and we're made pure and we're given a new identity. And all of that's the broken body of Jesus. So let's reflect on the broken body and take and eat. And as we open the little juice cup underneath, verse 22 reminds us that we're part of a family of saints. We're not saints on our own, but, but around this room and across the world and throughout history, there's one thing that unites us. And this is what Paul writes in the very last verse of this letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. It's the grace of God, salt and light, that led God to provide for our every need. It's the grace of God that led him to send Jesus when we were still running from him and when we were deep in poverty. And it's the grace of God that invites you into his family of saints, no matter who you are or what you do. And it's the grace of God that led Jesus to the cross and the grace of God that leads us moment by moment by his spirit to display and witness a better Lord than Caesar in Paul's day and a better Lord than any false God that we so quickly turn to as we saw in Psalm 24 today. It's the grace of God that makes Jesus' good news incessantly shape every cultural moment in a relationship and joy and moment of our everyday lives. And that grace is only available through the broken body and now the shed blood of Jesus for you. Take and drink as we reflect on the grace of God. Father, we thank you for your provision. We thank you that every good and perfect gift comes from you. We thank you that you provide everything we need for life. And we pray that you remind us of how much better you are when we do turn to things that are false and fading, when we do worship the proverbial Caesars of our day and give more credit there, and when we seek other things to provide for us. Would you meet with us? Would you draw us back? Would you draw us back? Would you draw us back? Pray that you, by your Spirit, would help us rely on the strength of Jesus and pray that you would help us use all of the gifts that you give us for your glory and your good. It's all through your son Jesus' name we pray.